podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. In series one, we looked at the critical nature of water for agricultural production. Now, cotton has been much maligned as a crop that could be unsuited to our dry climate and that it maybe even robs more than its fair share of water from the environment and all the other agricultural uses. Indeed, the perception of much of urban Australia is that cotton growers take excess water out of the Murray-Darling and store it on their farm to pour it onto a very thirsty crop that we shouldn't even be growing. On top of that, Cotton is highly susceptible to insect damage and has required massive amounts of dangerous organophosphates during history to stop it being destroyed by these pests. So how has the cotton industry performed in terms of the three P's of agriculture? Productivity, principles and provenance. So to explore these questions, our key agriminder today is the chair of Auscot, which is Australia's largest cotton producer, Dave Anthony. Welcome to Agriminders, Dave. Thanks, Chris. So, Dave, as far as cotton is concerned, cotton uses water, a lot of irrigation water. About 26% of Australia's irrigation water is used on cotton. Um, and obviously, there is a perception of a competition there between using it for cotton and using it for food products. So why is Auscot so committed to cotton and, and how does cotton fit into our demands of the next 50 years? Okay, so that's, we just need to sort of unpack that because there's a, a lot of perceptions or assumptions in there. So we call it the driest continent. I, I question that in terms of it's like today, one one minute it's pouring and there's heaps and heaps of water and then we'll go through dry periods. You know, at Burke we've had the situation where we've had 500,000 megalitres. That's that's uh, over the size of Keeper Dam throwing, flowing through Burke every day during big floods. And then we've had periods where Burke, the river, hasn't flown for 150-odd days. So um, it's a, we live in a very variable climate and the volatility of the, of the so water. So Burke is a town in West New South Wales, for, for, the, for those who don't live in New South Wales. Very dry part of the country at best. But as you say, it's an area of drought and flooding rains. It sure is. And so... Cotton and rice are just ideally so, so suited to that environment because it's an annual crop, as is rice. Um, if there's no water around, we don't plant. So this year, for example, we're down about 53% from last year, our plantings. And there have been years when we've been down to only 7% of our, our plantings. And, and we've got over 220 full-time employees and others. So f- f- that variability is something we have to, to live with. But that's that's the situation we have in Australia. If we were in tree crops, that would be murder. You cannot run out of water with tree crops. So where we're growing rice and cotton is we're using these what they call a general security licence. So it's it's highly variable. Um, for example, the reliabilities of that. If we, if you looked at the guider, for example, the reliability of of getting your entitlement each year is about forty three percent. But that li- that entitlement under general security is in fact only if the water's there. Only if the water's there. It's it's and that's that's the issue. That's why we can vary our plantings. But you can't do that if you if you're using permanent crops, nut crops or citrus or those things. You need high security water, which is not generally used on on cotton. So let's get back to to why we're using that. Um, 
water on cotton. Now, we can only use the water that's in our licence. I think there's this perception that people can just go and put a pump in a river and, and irrigate their, their cotton crops and that's using water out of the system. It's not. We have a licence and we have to work to those conditions. So the reason that um, we we have a licence and if if we're not allowed to grow cotton or rice, for example, then they wouldn't save any water in the Murray-Darling system because what it would force irrigators to do is then look at the next most profitable crop to use their water on. Just like any city person, if they're going to invest money in a bank, you go to the bank that's going to give you the best return. It's just common sense. The fact that it's the most profitable crop and that's why it's grown over a big area. Now, if carrots, for example, it's an example I've given to other people. If everyone in Australia decided to eat heaps and heaps of carrots every day, maybe we'd we'd then be complaining about the carrot industry is using too much water. That, that's really the fact of it. But we're so good at growing cotton. You know, we, we, we're the third biggest and um, third or fourth biggest exporter of cotton in the world and we have the highest yields of cotton in the world and we've got the highest water use efficiency of, of cotton grown in the world. We're damn good at, at growing it because we have an ideal uh, place out there. So why, why wouldn't we want to grow that, uh, that cotton crop? So when we say we're the most efficient, um, my my research seems to tell me that about 70% of the water we put on cotton is used by the cotton and we've actually improved our water efficiency tremendously, maybe even doubled that over the last decade or so. Is that right? Well, I certainly know from the, the cotton CRC, which I was the chair, over the, the uh, 10-year period we saw a 40% increase in the water use efficiency and that was... Again, using the same amount of water but just getting a lot more yield out of it. And there's a whole heap of reasons why that increased. So we know it's it's a scarce commodity and we use it to our best effect. Why don't the rest of the, the rest of the world don't worry about that so much or are we doing that just because it's Australia? Oh, look, I think I think we know that water's a scarce commodity here so we, we, we're very conscious of it and, and we've been conscious of it for a long time. I really can't speak around the world other than to say the CSIRO breeding program in Australia has delivered such good yield, yielding varieties, coupled with excellent agronomy. You know, Australian farmers are amongst the best in the world, and that's that's where that water use efficiency has, has come from. And what what is the value of the Australian cotton crop to Australia? We we get about sixty billion dollars worth of business out of agriculture in Australia. How much of that is cotton? So, if we looked at the season that's just gone. Um, the total value was about $2.25 billion. But again, like any of those crops out there, in the years when there's very little water, that'll drop. And in years, uh, we've been uh, over 5 million bales in some years, which is, again, a a higher return. So when the cotton is harvested, um, it comes off the crop and and the particular farmer who grow it, who grows it, sends it to the gin. Is the whole thing vertically integrated here by the one company or... How how does that work? Like with wool, they sell the wool to the market and somebody else takes it and yarns it and so on and so forth. What's the process for cotton in terms of value adding to the cotton? So you've got to break that down. So if the, the average grower has somewhere around 300 to 400 hectares of cotton. So they don't own their own processing. So they, they will grow that cotton and harvest it and then they will send it to people like ourselves who have gin. So we farm cotton. We also gin it and we, we market it and ship it overseas. So we, our company is vertically uh, integrated and there are other companies that, that a similar boat. But the majority of the industry is family farms and small farms and so they're um, selling cotton to us uh, or to other merchants, cotton merchants. It's a very competitive scene in Australia and that's, that's how the system works. Interesting term, ginning. Where did gin come from? 
Yeah, it goes back to uh, 1793 when Eli Whitney invented the the ginning process, which we use today, still use that same principle today, um, and it was called engine. It was just short for engine, but it's become become ginning. So the big competition, of course, for cotton and for wool indeed in Australia is synthetic fibre uh, and the development of polyester in particular. How is cotton going at the moment in terms of global competition with that and what, where are the tipping points where people make the decision to start using polyester versus using cotton? Yeah, it's an interesting um, The fact is if we, if we hadn't had polyester, most of us would be going around with very little clothing because cotton... Um, so if you went back to 1960, cotton was about 70-odd percent of the world market, the share of the fibre market. Today it's probably about 28 to 30 percent and then things like wool are around 1 percent. So it's still very important and demand for cotton is still going up at roughly 2 percent a year. The really interesting thing about cotton is if you look at the area of cotton grown in the world from 1960 to today, it's hardly varied. It's stayed somewhere between 30 million hectares and about 35 million hectares um, and it's just sort of gone up and down through that that area. What has changed is the yield. So it's a real plus for cotton that it hasn't had to go and clear more acreage all around the world. What it's done is improved its productivity and it's 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 just a, a miracle story about what's happened. So, Dave, where, where do those productivity increases come from? Are they just coming? Are they coming per hectare or per gigalitre of water, or you know what are they, and how have we done that? Okay, so so the the productivity has come from, and whether you measure it in bales per megalitre of water used or bales per hectare, they've all gone up. And the the biggest reasons lie in two areas. The first one is the the genetics, and you know, Syro needs. You know, to be really well recognised for the for the great effort they've done in breeding program. It is it is a world class, world leading, and now our, our varieties have just really performed very well. So that's been a huge increase in in provide a huge increase in productivity. Probably about forty five to fifty percent of the increase in yield is just straight genetics. The second part is just the agronomy. If you just look around, cotton farmers are very professional. Uh, highly professional farmers because when you're dealing with a crop that's costing you three to four and a half thousand dollars a hectare, you can't be a mug farmer when you're spending that sort of money. And so the agronomy has been really spot on and uh, you combine that with the genetics, we've had a, almost a syn- synergy, the things have just improved. So that's the biggest one. So while we're talking about genetics, um, Dave, you know, one of the bait noirs really for the critics has been the amount of chemical that used to be used. In fact, my understanding in the Ord River is that it just about was the reason for it wiping that crop out, the amount of chemical they were spraying just to keep the heliothus out of the crops because it was so devastating and so hard to control. And in fact, I often wonder whether endosulfan, you know, organophosphate is, was ever continued to be used only so that, because it was the only way you could have the cotton crop. And yet you've almost wiped the use of those horrible chemicals out now. What, how have you done that? Yeah, well, when I started in the industry, it was the DDT days and, uh, I mean, none of us really liked putting chemicals on, but it was was an essential, otherwise you wouldn't have got a crop. But as time went on, a lot of people started to question uh, the use of chemicals and could there be a better way, but it, it was very, very difficult. Uh, if you look at the ord, and you're right, the ord closed down 
uh, basically because of the um, just couldn't keep spraying. But remember, the orders now started up again. There's something like 350 hectares up there this year, but they're growing it as a winter crop. The problem, or the biggest problem they had over there when they first grew it, they grew it as a summer crop. So you had huge range, you had huge insect populations. It, it was always going to fail. Um, whereas today, with the genetically modified cottons, it's changed. So the, the really big change, the two big changes that I think that have, have, have happened on insect control and reduced chemical use was the integrated pest management. Now, that came ahead of genetically modified ones. People started to look at ways, could the predator insects in a crop, could we preserve them, could we go softer early on? And uh, that, that allowed a lot of our um, insect problems to be diminished. Didn't go away, but they certainly diminished and the amount of spraying dropped down. But then, um, and, you know, Monsanto, it's a dirty word, I know, but Monsanto was breeding insect-resistant cottons. They were producing genes that could go into the cotton crop that were resistant to a lot of the insect problems that we have here. And CSIRO uh, was able to take those those genes, put them into Australian varieties. And, and Oscott was certainly part of the very early trials. And, and from someone like myself that had come from the spraying regime days, to see a, in our first year some of, some of those fields got no sprays. That was just mind-blowing to me, absolutely mind-blowing. And, and so it's gone on. They've improved the uh, genetic engineering now by having more uh, genes in there for, for control and uh, it's just sensational. So that's been the big, big drivers. But what it happens when you don't spray is all of a sudden your predator insects breed up and the thing starts to get really a much more balanced system and that's when integrated pest management really starts to, to work really well. But it's been sensational. Um, the reduction in chemicals um, is just been unbelievable, plus the high yield. So we, we've yeah, it's a winner all round. We talked to uh, Danny Llewellyn, who I think was the CSIRO's chief scientist in that area who did a lot of this work. We've talked to him in episode two. But um, what sort of life would you give to that technology before, you know, you're going to have to be back to the spraying again? But every technology you get when you're dealing with the biological systems, you have to be aware that resistance is going to come, whether it's chemicals or genetic engineering or whatever. It's, it's just a part of life. So I believe Australia is one of the few countries that can manage genetically modified crops very successfully because, one, we've got good communication, we've got highly educated people out there and we work together. So to give you some examples, when uh, Monsanto did introduce uh, these genes, I think they thought, well, we'll just sell these like we do in the US, we'll just get them. And Australian growers said, no, 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 we want to control this. We need to preserve this technology and so we put in place um, resistance management programs. We'd already had those started with insecticides uh, because after the DDT days we went into the pyrethroids and some of those and there were issues there of resistance. Very safe chemicals but the resistance was building up to them. So we started resistance management programs and that's been extended to genetically modified uh, cottons. And what we've seen is um, more genes coming in and every time you add more genes for resistance, it just gives you the, the chance of resistance building up diminishes, but it has to be managed in an overall system. And when you combine it with integrated pest management, you've got a pretty powerful thing. But we can't, we can, we can't take our, our eye off that ball. That, 
resistance management will be here forever. So let's just unpack that a little bit. So you, you've got a plant which, um, when it's got this gene that's been spliced in, if you like, into the leaf and the and the heliothus comes along and eats the leaf, that kills that heliothus. But then the odd ones of those will be resistant and won't die, and then they'll breed and produce more heliothus, which will carry that resistance, and that's how resistance builds up. Is that correct? No, that's correct. So when, when the first genetically modified crops cottons came into Australia, which was in the mid-90s, um, there was only one gene. It was called in-garden. It was only one gene. Another gene was added in the early 2000s and we called that Bolgard 2. So does that give you twice as much chance of uh, not it, getting resistance? It gives it more than twice as much. It's, it's, you need a geneticist to tell you, but it, it certainly increases it very, very much further because the chances of a, a resistant individual surviving are very reduced. Now, today we've got three genes for resistance in there, which just magnifies that. But then you have to, as I said, it's got to be part of an integrated pest management program. So what we try to do is kill the pupae in the in the soil, which carry the, the resistance genes over the, the season. We do that. We try to encourage as much as possible predators and natural beneficial insects, which take out insects so, so you've got to look at it as a whole system and that's what's so important. I think one of the bits that fascinated me was that you actually grow non-genetically modified plants on the side so that you actually get a population of bugs who are eating those particular plants and therefore not being exposed to the resistant or, or to the thing they can be resistant to. They come back and breed with the population that's trying to eat your crop and kind of get rid of any resistance they had. This It's you, not intuitive that you would do that, but oh. that's been a clever thing to do, I think. Yeah, well, it, it was it was obvious to everyone in industry that's what had to happen from the very beginning because it's an industry that's based on science. We work closely with the scientists, so we're always told that we needed to have these buffer areas which would be not sprayed so there wouldn't be any selection. And you're right, those moths would fly in and mate with the, the ones that were being selected in the uh, in the commercial crop. And, and that's how you keep that gene down there. So there's a, there's a whole heap of mechanisms. So as I said, it's an integrated system. It's not – you don't just rely on one factor. So these are just not farmers, are they? They have to be – they have to have a lot of skills to run these sort of farms well, these days. Yeah, you have to understand all that. And, and a lot of them have very good agronomists advising them what's going on. So globally, you know, Uzbekistan and all these other places where they grow cotton, are they as sophisticated in that sort of technology as well or are they still much more or less way behind where we are at? Look, I can't ex- I can't talk for every country and I don't know all the ones that have GM cotton because a lot of countries don't have it. Probably the majority do now. But um, I think, again, it comes back to the Australian farmer. I think he's well-informed. They work closely with the scientists. So you can imagine going to India and those places where you've got a lot of small holdings. It's, the communication is much more difficult. The level of education is much more difficult. Um, and whether they can combine like our industry has where we go and tell the suppliers, hey, this is how we're going to manage it, don't you force your ideas on us. And I think that's the strength of the Australian cotton industry. So, I mean, there, there's certainly an awareness, if you like, I suppose, of Australia being a much cleaner, more sustainable, greener um, place to produce agricultural products. And one of the things we've been looking at in this series is provenance, that people no longer take your word for it. You say, oh, this is a T-shirt made from Australian cotton. And they'll say, well, prove it, because I, I don't want 
cotton comes from India or Uzbekistan. I want it from Australia, but how can I tell? It's just a T-shirt. And uh, Ozcot have actually been quite clever in that technology. Where, where have they gone with that? Yeah, well, this is this is a really new area, and it's not just Oscott. There are other. Louis Dreyfus is also looking at this. Um, so it's very early days. But to step back, one one of the one of the strengths of the Australian cotton industry for a very long time was we always had traceability in terms of where the the cotton came from. You, if if someone had a problem with a bale in uh, a mill in say China or or tai, Taiwan or wherever it was. Um, you know, there might be a quality problem with it. They could trace that all the way back to the who supplied it and everything was barcoded and we could tell which field, which grower it came from. So but there was always a good traceability, which wasn't the case for most agricultural commodities. So, we, so we've started that and that still goes on today. The next step that's come, and, and it, it came, I guess, uh, maybe out of the Puma cotton because there's, there's two major cottons in the world. Most of the world's like 95, 96% grows the, the upland cotton that we grow, but there is what they call extra long staple uh, cotton called Puma, called Egyptian, and it, um, it only makes a very small fraction of, the, in, of the, the world industry, but there were some problems where people were blending cottons and still claiming it to be fully Puma or whatever. So several companies got involved there looking at, could they look at the DNA, how could they trace it back? Um, Oritain is one of those companies and that's the one we've been working with. And there's a couple of ways people are looking at this. One is that as the cotton's being ginned and it's ready to go in the bale, maybe you then spray the cotton with some traceability um, product that can be can, someone can test overseas. The other way is looking at the DNA, getting samples of DNA, and they can go back and say, yeah, this cotton came from Australia or this cotton came from South Africa or, or wherever it's coming from. So... I think there's a long way to go on that. It's it's a whole exciting new area, but uh, certainly the cotton industry is very receptive to traceability. And is that an expensive process to put in or where do you look, think you get a return? Oh, look, I can't tell you, Chris, it's how expensive it is right now because it's still in the very early early days. But I suspect if it's done on a volume basis, it, it, it won't be a high cost. So when you're talking about DNA, DNA tracing, I mean, people hear about DNA and, the, you know, the police actually use it to find criminals and, and you can do all sorts of things with DNA, but we think of it being something that you would use for flesh and for animals and so on. How do you impregnate um, cotton with something that, you know, will identify each strand of cotton, if you like, um, with DNA when it's not naturally kind of present? Okay, so... so th- as I said, one of the techniques is is the spraying of cotton as it's being ginned with a substance that can trace it. So they'll know that substance is used in New South Wales or whatever and can trace it. The DNA side, which is a side that's got a lot of development, um, when you look at DNA, um, there there are markers in, in that that can tell where that's come from. It's like one of the research programs that was done over a number of years was looking at the insects that are in a cotton crop what have they fed on before the you know where, what crops have they come from? What other um, hosts have they come from? And you can do that by DNA, looking at the markers, and that you can trace with el- different elements, radioisotopes that can tell you where that's come from. And that's the same sort of thing with the the DNA. That's any DNA that they can find in there. So in why, the why can't our competitors spray some the same DNA, find out what it is, and spray it on their crop? Because it'll be specific. The DNA will be 
they'll be able to the scientists will know this is what cotton from Australia is like this is what cotton from South Africa there, there's all sort of slightly but what about these sprays though uh, I I really can't answer that I'm assuming that there'll be governance issues in there that to make sure that it can't be used but um, I can't I really can't answer that so I mean one of the issues of course with the Ord River at the moment is that they're growing as you say 350 hectares of cotton but they can't get it ginned up there. Um, and I, my view, the continuation of that really depends on whether they get a gin up there or not. Is Oscott going to put a gin up there? <laughs> every time I've been, I've been up there in recent years, and every time I go up there, I get lobbied to, to build a gin. But it's uh, it's you know it's the industry. There's no sizable industry there yet, so I don't see anybody going up there. But that cotton's coming actually across to Queensland, and Queensland cotton will be be ginning that. But they have another option that maybe they will put that cotton. Um, when they pick it, seed cotton be be sent in containers overseas without being ginned, and it'll be ginned in another country. That that is a possibility. It's expensive, and may not work. But that 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 may help them get the industry going. So that was my point, really. That it, let's say it goes to China to be ginned in China. Once it's up there, I mean, it'll be mixed up with cotton from forty other countries. Who knows how they do that? Um, will it still be possible to say, well, 30% of that T-shirt came from Australian cotton and 60% from Uzbekistan or somewhere? Or no, I think, I think there'll be problems there. And um, so, yeah, whereas we, we know what we'll have because it's coming from our, our cotton. So I want to talk a little bit about the byproducts too. I mean, cotton is not just cotton. Unusually, you know, quite often byproducts are things that, you know, they are literally by like the gas in sugarcane, for example, they've struggled to find a use for it. But actually the byproducts, and particularly in 2018 when, when, the, when there's been a big drought on, um, you know, the seed out of the cotton, and, I, and uh, you can tell me what percentage of seed is there, uh, is actually worth, you know, a lot of money alongside being the cotton being worth a lot of money. How has that industry developed? Yeah, well, the, the industry has several byproducts. So obviously the lint, which is the highest value, and then we have the seed. The lint is the white white stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah. and that's what we spin in, in the clothing. Um, the seed, which is the biggest part of, of the, the plant. So if you have a bale, but the average bale or the standard they use is 227 kilograms. So a, a, a bale would uh, have with it about 250 to 300 kgs of seed depending on the variety and depending on the, on the season. Um, the seed uh, largely goes into stock feed markets and those sorts of things. Um, a reasonable amount uh, was crushed in Australia, but uh, the crushing mill at Narrabri has sort of gone into mothballs at the moment, so I'm not quite sure what's what's going to happen there. But it's a very good stock feed. It's used in dairy. Uh, a lot of it's exported and, again, So used... it can be fed either whole or crushed, can't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. Right. And is there any export market for it or yeah, is it too no, there's bulky? Yeah, there's quite a big export market. If you, if you looked at a, in an average season of around, say, a million tonnes of, of cotton seed, um, there could be 40% uh, could go overseas. Um, but again, it depends on the price, exchange rates. Like all these commodities, it, it, there's a lot of factors determined. And what right. else comes out of cotton when you... Okay, so then about 5 to 10%, depending, depending on the season, is what we call trash. That's the other thing that comes out of it. Now, trash is, has been an issue for a long time. What do you do with it? Um, we looked at... Uh, making syngas. So in a cotton gin, 
we use gas to dry the cotton down, get the moisture down so we can properly clean it up. And we looked a number of years ago at making Syngas, having a company come in and use pyrolysis to, to make a, um, a gas come out of, the, out of it, which we could use. The problem was the fluctuation, a bit like the weather. Some years there's a lot of cotton, some years there's not much. And they, it just wasn't going to be economic. It was a lot, millions of dollars involved. So this sin gas is a gas you put a match we, to we and could, it we makes We could heat. use it instead of propane. Yeah, right. So that's what we use at the, at the moment. So that was, that was one. But so with that, we had to keep looking, what are we going to do with this trash issue? Now, it breaks down it, out there in the weather. And most of it's just dumped out in yards and, and kept there. What we've started doing in recent years is composting it. It makes a fantastic compost. Um, and we've been putting, doing trials of putting that back on the fields. The problem with compost, as anyone in the garden would know, it's it's a light and fluffy, so it's expensive to move any sort of distance. And so you need to uh, put it on ground close to the the gin site. So we're still doing work on that, but we yeah, that's that's one way we're getting getting rid of it. So I'd like to come now to looking at trying to look into the future. Um, challenges and and opportunities that you can see. First of all, what do you think are the biggest challenges coming up for the cotton industry over the next thirty or forty years? Well, I mean, water water is always going to be a challenge for anyone that's an irrigator. Um, you know, water wars will go on ever in a day. So, getting access to water is a is a really big challenge. But Things are happening there with the with the uh, basin plan and other things, and we've got to let some of those things take their course because people want to jump in before they've even let those things work. So that's that's one issue. I think um, the continuing uh, work on the resistance management in the crops because insects are an Achilles heel of the industry, so we need to keep going there. And so science is going to be hugely important to it. On the the side of the actual product. Um, what we've been able to do through the breeding program and again the agronomy is build is, is grow cottons, produce cottons that what the world wants. It's really value adding. A lot of people don't understand value adding fully, but when you put greater length and strength into a variety, you're actually adding value. And these mills, that's why Australia has probably the best prices in the world. When you look at what the futures markets are, when people buy Australian cotton, they're paying a premium, a good premium over the world price because it meets those sort of needs. So that's really important. We just need to keep going that way. That's what the customer wants. That's really important. So what, when you talk about price, what does it cost to plant a hectare of cotton and, and, to, and to bring it to, to harvest point? And what is that hectare then worth? In a, in a, you know, when you've got the water available, what is that hectare worth when it so takes the cotton off? Again, the, the costs vary a little bit because cotton's grown from, you know, cool areas like Gunnada right through into western areas in, in parts of Western Queensland. So um, the costs really vary a lot uh, over those areas because uh, of irrigation. Some some areas hardly irrigate, other areas irrigate a lot. So you've got pumping costs and all those sorts of things. So the cost to grow is somewhere around three and a half to $4,000 a hectare, and that includes fixed costs and variable costs. Now, if you're looking at... Um, uh, yields again. The the average yield takes that, that's used in Australia takes into account dry land and some people who only partially irrigate their crops. But if you're looking at a genuine irrigator who's fully irrigating their crop, uh, they're they're probably getting uh, twelve, fourteen bales per hectare, and so their income is probably around five and a half to six thousand dollars a hectare when 
everything's running right for them. And how does that compare with, say, growing wheat? Well, the answer to that I give to people because uh, we've been challenged, you know, why, why are you growing cotton here? And, and when Greenpeace came out, when the Olympic Games were on in 2000, Greenpeace came to look because cotton was the fabric of those, those games. And quite rightly, they came around and wanted to look at the industry that, uh, you know, they check it out, is it doing right? And the one thing, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, Bob Galmay's from Bonds brought him around. Bonds was a big, big cotton company at that time. Brought him around. And the one thing this guy remembered from spending hours with him going around was I said, you've got to remember this, this farm here, before it was developed, three families lived off this farm. Today, 61 families live off this farm because it's now growing cotton and we're processing the cotton. So that, that was a, that really stuck in his brain and that's that's a big, you know. That's a big difference, isn't it? Big, yeah. So previously we interviewed Neil Andrew, the chair of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and, of course, he's the guy who had the responsibility for delivering that. Do you think that that plan has set the cotton industry up for the, for its future in the next 20 years or do you think it's it's obviously had some inhibitory effect but has it given it security and sustainability? Look, the whole water sharing plans, you know, go back to the, the 2000 and 2004, getting a property right for water was really, really important uh, for us. And I think the buybacks have been important because a lot of people want to stay out there irrigating and producing food and producing fibre. So buybacks, you mean people who sold their water they back stopped. to the government to be put up yeah, for environmental for, use? To the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder who's got now a big swag of water, a huge swag of water that now has to be used for environmental purposes. So, I yeah, the plan, look, I think the plan's great, but all, people are always going to jump in and try and criticise the plan. But let's face it, we've got to let this plan work. No one's given it a chance to work. That's That's really important. There have certainly been cotton growers uh, sell their licences back. We've seen some really big operators that sell, sell that back, as have, have been other industry operators sell their, their water back. So, no, no I, look, I think the property rights was a huge issue. Otherwise, it's just like in Sydney. If you didn't have property rights for your house, man, you're <laughs> – it's just such an unstable system. And you can, who's going to invest when you haven't got that sure, sort of, of course, security? Yeah. So finishing off then, um, can we just talk about the opportunities that you think are there for the cotton industry? You're just coming towards the end of your time as chairman of Oz, Ozcot and you were previously the CEO, so you've seen a lot of change. What do you think the opportunities that you're excited about for them for the next um, couple of chairs and, and, and CEOs? Uh, look, as I said before, the industry is based on science and technology and, and I look now at a young agronomist joining our company the things that they have available to them, which I didn't have as a young agronomist, I, I just think, wow, I'd like to have my time over again because it's just it's just absolutely amazing what's out there. So, I Like can, what? A standout? Well, well, the first thing is you've got tractors where you don't have to steer them. That's just one of the basic things. But now as we're harvesting the cotton, we're getting yield maps. Every four square metres we're getting a yield thing. It allows you to go back out and say, why did this area yield high? Why did this area yield low? And it starts to pick those things up. Um, th- that sort of technology. The, the uh, early days of irrigation, we used to go out there with a shovel and dig a hole, look at what's happening. Now we have probes that are giving information back to the agronomist every 15 minutes on the moisture in the field. You've just sort of got that stuff. And then when you look out into the future, man, it's just there's, there's stuff out there that we don't, can't even think of now I think is just going to be so exciting. And in the breeding area, um, uh, just amazing. And cotton's got an important and a great future, you think, in Australian agriculture? Look, I have. It, it, as I said, it's, it's, 
ideally suited to the Murray-Darling Basin because it's an annual crop. I think it's it's sort of great. And you just got to remember, it comes back, we have a licence. We don't go out there and just pump water, put a pump in the river and pull it out. We have a licence. So we're going to use that licence. That's all we've got. And we have to use, lose, use that licence to the best we can. So we're going to use it for the highest value crop we can for the areas that, that we, are, we are in. So, Dave, thank you very much for being our agri-minder today and, and showing us around, if you like, what's been your industry for a long time now. Uh, it's been great having you on Agriminders. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, Chris. So it'd be reasonable to say that probably cotton is no more important or less important than any other crop. There's no doubt that it certainly is a very profitable crop to grow on the available water that irrigators have. There's also no doubt that having secured and paid for the water, the final decision on what it's used for to maximise their return must lie with the farmer. Having said that, there is also clear evidence that the cotton industry is very aware of its responsibilities not to waste water. And the work they've done has been groundbreaking globally on how they're actually able to get more cotton out of less water. So do you still think that cotton is a crop we shouldn't grow? Or do you think cotton is something that we'll need in the world and we can probably do it better than most other countries? In another episode of AgriMinders, which I've called GM, Is It the Baby or the Bathwater? We learn how cotton has been a pioneer in the area of using genetic modification to improve its sustainability and to reduce its footprint on the planet as we continue to grow this very important crop. So I hope that when you've listened to this episode and the GM episode, it will help you come to a conclusion about how these important technologies take a crop like cotton through to its future place in our agricultural production. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.